preacher today and then read our scripture. So today we have the honor of having Seth Westoff be our guest preacher today. It's really exciting. Seth, together with his wife Sarah, have been with Icon since the beginning. Seth serves on the leadership team. They're active in the Columbia City Group. Uh, They're parents of the dog Theo, a nice choco pie doodle. And um, I I butchered that. I'm so sorry. And um, it is really a joy. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Revelation 3, 14 through 22 to the church in Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and to eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Awesome. Well, it's been a long time um, since I've done this, uh, but it's an honor, it's a privilege to um, share God's word with you all today. Um, Really appreciate you all. Uh, Forgive me if I'm flipping back and forth between uh, my notes here and on my phone. Um, I was one of those students in college that got their stuff done like two weeks ahead of time, their papers, and then I submitted it to someone to review, uh, and then I would get it back and make more refinements up to the time that I submitted it, and I was doing the same thing with the sermon. So um, I have it printed, but not everything now is on the printed, and so it's on my phone. Um, So I'll be flipping back and forth. But uh, the main idea for today's sermon is greatness and the hope thereof makes for zealous people, essentially great expectations. So Philip, uh, he came from a small town in Kansas, uh, but he wanted to get away. So uh, when college time came, he applied to and got into Harvard, uh, went uh, to the city and had a great experience. And soon after graduation, he landed a great job at a reputable tech firm in the heart of Manhattan. Like he was living the dream. And it was setting him on a course to upward mobility, a steady and sure course. And so he had like the nicest clothes. He had a swanky uh, apartment in the Upper West Side. 
Like, you know, he had a Tesla. You don't need a car in New York, but he had one because he could, you know. Uh, he was going on the, you know, all sorts of amazing vacations to Ibiza, to Vietnam, to the Bondi Coast in Australia. I mean, this guy had it, right? Like, he had made it. He had escaped, and he had made it. But, you know, after having all these things, after experiencing all these things, it just, it wasn't quite what he had expected. There was, like, this nagging feeling that... There's just something more, something's missing. And he couldn't get rid of it. And it just stuck with him for month after month. And finally he's like, okay, I just, maybe I just need to clear my mind. I'm just gonna like, I'm gonna get away, I'm gonna clear my mind. So he booked a ticket and the next weekend he landed in KC. And he uh, got his rental car, a Mercedes GLC 300, because like, you can't be fully electric in the country but you gotta be stylish still. So uh, he got in his car and he's driving and you know, he's on the road for about six hours through rolling countryside, farms, small towns. Nothing like super uh, you know, stood out. Uh, it was just kind of all the same. Not as bad as Wyoming. But um, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he eventually saw some familiar sights that were coming into view. He saw some white grain uh, towers in the distance, maybe like 10 minutes off. Uh, to the north, he saw a big red barn you know, that had been there forever and is still standing strong. Um, to the left then, he saw Galen's Cafe where the local farmers commune for their morning cup of burnt Folgers, great stuff. Uh, and then as he rounded the last corner, he saw what welcomed every visitor to the town, the machinery store. There were shiny, bright, you know, John Deere tractors and combines and tillers sitting there for every farmer to uh, just really uh, desire, right? Uh, and then finally he was in town, about half a mile in town. Take a right onto uh, Main, uh, Main Street and down about another half mile. Take a left on First Ave, about down three blocks, and then he was at his house. And he got out of his car, closed the door, and as he was walking up to the house, he heard the voices of his very familiar people, Joe, um, his brother-in-law, average farmer, and Biddy, his childhood friend, who was like a simple but kind-hearted country girl, and they were talking on the back porch. And as he was walking up and hearing those voices, a waft of fresh cut wheat came into his nostrils and a shudder ran through him and he stopped, intent upon the extraordinary thing that was happening to him. An exquisite pleasure had invaded his senses, something isolated, detached, no suggestion of its origin. And at once, the vicissitudes of life had become indifferent to him, its disasters innocuous, its brevity illusory. This new sensation had on him the effect which love has of filling him with a precious essence. Or rather, this essence was not in him, but it was him. Whence did it come? What did it mean? How could he seize and apprehend it? And at that moment, he realized that all those great expectations which he had so zealously chased had been there at the beginning where he started. If you don't recognize this modern rendition of the story, uh, those are kind of the final chapters of Great Expectations, right, Pip? And it's a great picture of what happened in the church of Laodicea. A church yearning for, expecting for greatness in their life, zealously pursuing their dream, only to find out 
that their zealousness was misplaced in an empty, meaningless thing. That what they had sought all along was back at the beginning. Now, a little bit of background uh, for Laodicea. So, uh, Laodicea is located in the modern country of Turkey. Um, so, if this is Turkey and this is the Aegean Sea, we have Ankara up here and Laodicea about 450 miles to the south. Um, in ancient uh, Turkey, or in that time, Asia, the Roman province of Asia, Ephesus is on the coast, in, uh, on the Aegean coast, and then about 100 miles to the east was Laodicea. Just north, about 10 miles, was Hierapolis, and just south, about 10 miles, was Colossae. So that's kind of where uh, they were sitting in the day. And Laodicea didn't really have its own water source. That was kind of one of the things it was missing. So it had to draw water from each of those cities. It drew hot water from Hierapolis, and it drew cold water from uh, Colossae. That way they had something to drink. But that's not to say that they didn't have anything that they were known for. They were actually known for three different things. One of those was wool from uh, the goats who were kind of were shepherded around the countryside there. It's this black, glossy wool, um, and it was exported all around the world. Uh, there was a major trade route that went from Ephesus all the way through uh, Laodicea and then down into Syria and Israel. So their stuff was getting exported around the world. Essentially think of like Italian leather, right? Or uh, French-made uh, uh, garments, right? Uh, it was very popular. They, they were the best dress of Asia at that time. They also had an excellent medical school, and specifically a, a, a salve for the eyes that was known to help failing eyes and weak eyes. And so they essentially had, you know, John Hopkins right there. They had the great, greatest medical care uh, that, you know, they could have asked for. And then the banks, right? Because of all these great things that they had, a lot of money was coming in. All of those banks were solvent. And they were so rich that in 60 AD, a major earthquake struck and destroyed the city. Rome came along, because it was an important city to Rome, they came along and said, hey, like, we're here to help you out, just let us know what you need um, to rebuild, and Laodicea's like, nah, we're good, we're good, we'll do this. Uh, that's how rich they were. Imagine, I mean, you all remember the, the destruction of Hurricane Katrina, right? It was crazy, I mean, the city was destroyed. Imagine New Orleans saying, now we're good, we can handle this, FEMA, go help someone else. That's how it was, right? The city was proud and they were rich. And they had good theology. In many respects, it was a city much like New York or Seattle, a country like Korea or the US. That's the context of the Laodicean church. Rich, well-dressed, healthy, influential, and respected by people in general, you know, much in by and large, much like America today. So America, right, in basically 200 years, got to be the sole superpower, essentially after World War II, right? So if you think in the grand scheme of things, of history, that's a very short time for a nation to rise to such influential power. So we're, sit I mean, we're sitting in a very unique time in history. Also, the country is very known for its wealth, and not just the country as a whole, its economy, but each one of us, right? They say that if you have spare change in your pocket, Bitcoin, or you know, money in your wallet, maybe a Bitcoin wallet, or uh, money in your bank, or you know, from Bitcoin, <laughs> that you are actually among the top 10% of the wealth, wealthiest individuals in the world. 
Pew Research in 2015, and granted it's 2015, but I think like if we adjust for everything that's been going on, not too much has changed, so I think it still holds true. They said that nearly nine in 10 Americans have a standard of living that's above the global middle income. Nine in 10, that's most of us here. In 2013, again, I think this still holds true, all things considered, the New York Times published an article citing research from Branko Milanovic estimated that a typical person at the bottom 5% of American income distribution is still richer than 68% of the world. Let that sink in, especially considering the talk in the city and the country and across the world, right, about wealth redistribution, you know, the richest of the rich, what to do with that. You know, I think if Occupy Wall Street really thought a little bit, you know, in a broader context, it might not be Occupy Wall Street, it'd be Occupy America. We are the super rich of the world. We're also known for science, right? The most number of published articles, uh, scientific articles in the world, sec you know, China is only second to us, and then third and below is a far distant from our first place. We're also known for learning. 25% of all the top 100 universities are in the US, right? Out of total universities, the US has more, and second is England, right? But the US has nine times more than that. In terms of tech, Japan's first, but we're a close second. And then in terms of culture, which is perhaps the most uh, influential piece, democracy, right? We're known as kind of the country of democracy. 40% of the world's nations have a democracy, more or less. We also speak English, which is a modern day Greek. I work in uh, advertising and I speak with my teams across the globe. We all speak in English and they speak it well, right? We, we have a very influential culture, our language. And then music and entertainment. It's so ubiquitous that some countries have laws that a certain amount of music from that country has to be played on the radio because otherwise it'd all be English, right? That's how influential, how wealthy we are as Americans. And Laodicea had it all in many senses uh, as well, just like America, and so does Seattle. But all of that wealth and comfort had a deleterious effect on the church, right? They slowly began to believe that their expectations, their hopes could be best fulfilled in the things that the city offered to the point that they had bought into the lie, all while still holding on to apparently good theology. Uh, so they had misplaced their desires. John Mark Comer explains this uh, this way in his book, Live No Lies. Deceptive ideas, lies, about who we are and what we need, and these lies play into our disordered desires, the flesh, which are normalized by the fallen world around us. That's what Laodicea had done, right? They had believed that the things that the city offered could help them achieve their great expectations, their hopes, right? It's not necessarily that their hope for security, their hope for uh, recognition or you know, uh, fellowship was uh, wrong, those are good desires to have. It's that when we misplace how we get those things, that turns us away from Christ and to the world, right? Security, I have the financial means 
uh, that I, you know, I, I feel financially insecure, so I need to focus on wealth creation so that I have the financial means to eat well, you know, have a nice place, go on fun vacations, and a retirement fund to continue that sort of living. A recognition, right? I feel so unrecognized and small, so I'll either dress well, succeed at work, um, find someone to love me, that sort of thing. We have these good desires, these things that God has placed in us for fellowship, for security, but we are seeking the wrong things to meet those. And so they said, I've made it. You know, I'm good, I don't need anything. I am good to go men uh, materially and spiritually. They had compromised. But the thing is, you can't have both. You can't have your cake and eat it too, right? Materialism or things of the world and spiritual things, you can't bring those together. It's like oil and water, right? One displaces the other. If you put in the world, you, you know, Christ and uh, our spiritual life goes out. You put in Christ and our spiritual world and the things of the world are displaced. You can't have both. And so this is why Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Not the root of all evil, but all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Right, so they had really bought into the lie of Laodicea that I can have all these things, this is gonna fulfill me, um, and it had led them away from their relationship with Christ to be zealousless Christians. They had made their way down the path of Psalm 1, right? Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. They had walked down that path, right? They have walked in the way of the counsel of the wicked, believing those lies, and they were standing in the way of sinners. And maybe some were even sitting in the seat of mockers, saying, like, you, this, this is enough. Like, this is what you should be seeking. This will give you security. This will give you meaning in your life to fulfill your great expectations. And so they looked like everyone else and spoke like everyone else, indistinguishable from the world. And it wasn't just wealth that had uh, replaced that. It was their theological standing, right? They apparently had good theology, but because they had displaced their faith, displaced Christ with those things, they knew it all, but they didn't feel at all. In the end, those misplaced hopes made them, as my brother used to say about someone who thinks they're cool but not really cool, is a cold booger on a warm plate. <laughs> He'll love that I use that. Um, right, so they were spiritually blind, thinking they don't need any help, but actually desperately in need of it. The spiritual blindness is very evident as you look across the globe. So I used to uh, be a missionary intern in France, um, and I had to raise my own support for uh, doing that. So I'd go around to these different churches, speak, talk about France, and a lot of times I'd get this reaction of like, oh, you're gonna be a missionary in France? How hard? going to see the Eiffel Tower, eating baguettes, you know, like, sure, you're gonna go be a missionary in France. Um, and so it was actually kind of hard to raise support, right? Because people didn't really see the need. Whereas my friends who are missionaries in Vanuatu in the South Pacific, yeah, they, it was easy for them to raise support, right? People are like, oh, you're on an island in the middle of the Pacific? 
There's like no big cities. There's not like a lot of modernity around. Like, please take my money. You need it. Um, but on the other hand, it was very hard for myself in France and a lot of the Western world, right? The global North, uh, North America and West, uh, Western Europe specifically, because people don't believe in God. They don't even believe that there is a God or even spirituality, right? It's very post-Christian. Whereas in places like Vanuatu or uh, a lot of places in Africa and Asia and South America, there's a real understanding that there's a spiritual world, right? And so it's very easy in some senses to witness those, to those people because you don't have to you know, go around this uh, idea of like, is there a spiritual world or isn't there? And if there is, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's just, okay, we believe there's a spiritual world. Which one is the right one? Which God is the right God? Right? And so these comforts that we have in the US, these comforts that Laodicea had, they can be very deceiving and lull us into a sense of, you know, everything is good. We don't need anything else. And blind us to the fact of our spiritual need, the spiritual reality. Right? That spiritual blindness is very evident. And so it misdirects our hope. Uh, and turns us from a follower of Christ into a passionless spiritual shadow. And that is what makes Christ so sick, right? He says, I know your works. You're not hot or cold, but you should be hot or cold. So because you're lukewarm and aren't hot or cold, I'm gonna spit you out. The Greek word used here is actually more aligned to you know, puking or vomiting. So essentially Christ is like, you make me sick. You make me wanna puke because of this. If spitting was seen as bad in their culture, imagine the reaction that they would have had to him saying that he, that made them want to puke, right? That would have been a very uh, visceral response. So I'm sure that we can agree with Christ about lukewarmness, right? There's nothing worse than, uh, you know, having something, expecting something either hot or cold, uh, but it comes out lukewarm. Um, you know, you on a hot summer day, we haven't had a lot of those here in Seattle. Um, hopefully, we'll have some. Um, but you go to a restaurant, you order a beer, and you're expecting it to be like icy cold. You get it, it's just lukewarm. You're like, okay, this is not the experience I was looking for. Can you please take it back and give me a cold one? Or I don't know if you've ever eaten uh, Korean food at a Korean restaurant or with Koreans. But that, hot, that food is hot. It like, almost always comes out like really boiling hot. And somehow, like, Koreans just eat that <laughs> straight up, right? Like, my wife and I were watching this uh, show um, on Netflix the other day. And you know, in Korea, they go around and like, eat these different soups and stews. And it was always boiling. And the people, you know, the commentators, were just like, eating it straight away. <laughs> like, I don't know how they do it. But imagine, then, if they were brought something lukewarm, right? They'd be like. <laughs> okay, this is not the place that we wanted to visit for this show. Um, this, is, this is not good. Uh, please send it back. We can all agree that lukewarmness is not something that we want. But this is what Laodicea had become. They had compromised with the world for a shortcut to their hopes, thereby lulling themselves into a false reality of pride, where they not only uh, rec no longer recognized their need, but thought that they were set. They believed that they were more capable than they actually were. There's something uh, called the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's essentially a cognitive bias in which people believe they're smarter or better uh, and more capable than they really are. And there's two examples that kind of highlight this. 
Um, one um, is a, a study that they did on people who watch YouTube video tutorials versus those who just read a tutorial, right? So they had two groups of people. One group would watch YouTube tutorials about something, and the other group would just read it. And then they would uh, pull them afterwards and ask them, like, on a, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how capable do you think you are of doing this after having watched or read it? Those who watched the YouTube tutorials always overestimated grossly how capable they would be at doing the particular thing, always. I don't know about you all if you've watched these uh, videos before. I definitely have, you know, when we moved to Central District and like I'm trying to, uh, I was trying to install these smart switches in our home. And like one, I've not done a lot of electrical work before. Um, and so like, I watch these videos, I'm like, okay, I can do this, you know? Put these wires here, do that. Um, and so I opened, it was actually a, a light switch that had three different places you could turn things on. So I went to the middle one, opened up the box, and I'm like, okay, there are more wires here on this switch uh, than there are on the new one. <laughs> like, looking at more videos, like, okay, <laughs> where do these go? Uh, I don't wanna die, I don't wanna burn down the house. Um, what do I do? Uh, so a couple days, like I put it back together because it was getting dark and I didn't want to do that in the dark. Um, uh, and so, yeah, put it back uh, and tried a couple days later. And I did succeed. I opened up another one. And it was like, okay, there's just the same number of wires. <laughs> but there were all, there's like a four gang. So there are four different uh, switches in there. So I had to identify, okay, it's this one. And like, yeah, uh, it's working mostly. Um, one of the switches you just can't use, but at least you can tell Alexa to turn on the, the lights. Um, but yeah, you grossly overestimate your ability. Um, the other example is uh, this study that they did with people um, playing Monopoly. So they had two players. One player was given an advantage, and the other player was not. The first player was given twice as much starting money, right? They were allowed to use two dice versus the one other person using one dice. They got to collect twice as much money, rounding go. Uh, they didn't have to go to jail. Um, and they got the Mercedes versus the shoe. And every single time that person won. And they pulled those people afterwards and asked, like, so, like, what do you think, like, why did you win? Why was it you that won and not the other person? And every single person attributed that to their own ability. Like, oh, it's because I made this decision and that decision and the other person didn't do X, Y, and Z. Every single time. You're like, what world are you living in? That's what happened to the Laodicean church. That's what happens with us. As we displace Christ and our faith with the things of the world, we start to overestimate our ability and say, we're good, we're good. When in actuality, we are desperately in need of Christ. Desperately. And that's why Christ was just so sick. He's like, are you delusional? <laughs> Who do you think you are? But it doesn't happen overnight, right? It's not like one day you're following Christ and the next day you're like, the world is everything. It's kind of like Jeff Olson's book, right? Olson's book, The Slight Edge. So more or less in that book, he's saying, you know, over time, if you make positive decisions, just these little decisions incrementally, over time you reach these big uh, effects, right? These big accomplishments. It's not overnight that you get a big accomplishment. You have to have all these little things leading up to it. 
What happens when we start moving away from Christ is the opposite, same thing but opposite, right? We start not making the right decisions or making the wrong decisions and incrementally we move away from Christ so that eventually, you know, we're going this way but we're going this way and we end up further and further from Christ in our, in our faith. So I don't drink um, enough water. It'd be good if I got like two or three glasses in a day. Um, and so I try, you know, try this at home. Um, I just have a little bit of water at a time. Um, and I try to work up to three glasses. That's like good for me. Um, you know, I'll try to drink one in the morning. I'm like, okay, I'm a third of the way there. <laughs> Uh, and then I forget uh, one in the afternoon and then I have one in the evening. Like, okay, two thirds. Um, I was close. Um, so I'm working on it uh, incrementally, right? Uh, maybe I should try sips from, that, uh, from now on. So our great expectations, our hopes, disjointed from Christ can subtly day by day turn us from zealous disciples of Christ, living out our faith in love, attracting those who don't know Christ or himself into believers who look and act no different than anyone else. And our actions are important, right? Because they distinguish us from the world. In Luke 6, 43, it says, you'll know a tree by its fruit, right? The fruit of the tree is how you know it's an apple tree or a plum tree or a peanut tree. Peanuts don't grow on trees. Um, in John 13, 35, it says, they'll know you're a Christian by your love right? It's by your love that they'll know you're a Christian, not your theology. So yeah, Laodicea had, you know, apparently a good theology, but that didn't really matter. If they had become zealousless, they become indistinguishable from the world. Someone who has misdirected the attainment of their hopes away from Christ has no encounter with the living God, right? He's largely been forgotten, and it shows but encountering Jesus can only leave a person zealous. I don't know if you've ever been around someone who's zealous for Christ, or brother and sister, older brother and sister in Christ who has been faithfully walking along. There's just something different about them. You can feel it, you can sense it, you can see it, right? It's very apparent, people who have had an encounter with Christ. Very apparent. They just feel different. As C.S. Lewis observed, Jesus Christ produced mainly three things, right? Hatred, terror, or adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. So the implication is that if you're encountering Christ through close communion with him, then it's going to show, right? Most notably in your actions, in your zeal. And so Christ is gonna show them like, hey, I'm way better than all these things that you're seeking, trying to fulfill your great expectations, these desires. And so he gives them their, his credentials, right? In verses 14 through 15, he says, and to the angel in Laodicea, I write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. He's establishing his credentials to remind them beyond a shadow of a doubt that the assessment of them that he's going to make is absolutely true, right? He's like, this is true, this is valid. You can't like get around this. There's no discussing it. This is the truth. So that's why he says amen, right? That's what we mean when we say amen. We mean, yes, may it be so. This is the truth. And that's what Christ is saying. I am the amen. 
these words are trustworthy and valid and binding. There's absolutely no other assessment, no negotiating, no wrangling, or another point of view. The second aspect is he says he's the faithful and true witness. Not a faithful one, not a true one. He speaks only truth. He speaks the truth definite, period. There's no other truth. No, speak your truth. It's the truth that Christ is gonna speak. And so what should be taken, so this should be taken absolutely seriously. And then he says, he's the beginning of God's creation. So I, he was there in the beginning at creation. This is actually speaking of Christ's spiritual preeminence, right, the first fruits. He's the first in both source and sequence, right? That is of life. So those listening to Revelation, remember they're very close to Colossae. So they would have been very familiar with the letter that was written there. And in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is about to get real with the Laodiceans. He's like, I know your works. For you say, not realizing. So he's gonna put them in their place in two different ways, right? He said, okay, these are my credentials. Now let me tell you what's going on. He says, I'm rich. You say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I don't need anything. Not realizing that you're actually wretched. You're pitiable. You're poor. You're blind and naked. Notice each of these things that he addresses are the things that Laodicea is known for, right? They're rich. He says, you're poor. You say you're, you know, you have this eye salve and you can see, you're actually blind. Oh, you have these garments and these are like amazing garments. Do you know you're actually naked? He says, I know you. Deep down, further than you can imagine, I know you. Right, this is like in Psalm 139. I don't know if you're familiar with the passage, uh, but it really speaks to how Christ knows us. He says, oh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too, uh, it is too high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take on the wings of the dawn, or dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your, hand, your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall overcome me and the light become night around me, even the darkness is not light to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form me in my innerward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are... Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. 
Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Christ knows them. They have, they think they're hiding. They think they know what's going on, right? But they are destitute and Christ knows it and he's calling them out. Imagine being at work, right? Uh, And you have this entry level person come in, you give them this project and they finish it. And they're like, they're feeling good. They're like, man, I should be like assistant manager, lead at least. And you're like, you realize how utterly wanting it is in form and function and depth. You can only pity them. You're like, let me give you something else that will show you what's going on, right? Like, that's how Christ is with us in the Laodicean church, right? He's like, again, are you, delu- are you delusional? Do you understand the reality of what's going on here? Christ sees it all, how misplaced our hopes are and completely inadequate the results are and how we hide behind it, like Adam and Eve did behind those figs, right? They thought like, okay, we'll hide ourselves. And Christ is like, I see you. Let me give you something better. So what is Seattle known for, right? Activism, social justice, environmental leadership, wealth, health. What's ICON known for? Good theology. We're pretty young in general, right? Um, a younger church, great community, etc. And what are we known as uh, individuals, brothers and sisters? Spirituality, are we known for fun, beauty, intelligence, success at your job? A leader in your community, financial aptitude, fitness, what? Right? What do those say about our hopes, about our great expectations, and how are we seeking to accomplish those things apart from Christ? How are they displacing our faith? How are they displacing Christ? And are we looking for more, and are we looking more like the world or more like Christ? Are we zealous and full of life or are we listless? The second way that Christ puts them in place is through growth, right? Remember, Christ is about redemption. He doesn't just tear down and leave you there in the dirt, right? He shows us where we are, and he builds us up, right? So he builds upon his credentials from verse 14 to again address uh, each of the places Laodicea was known for. So he said that they're poor. He says, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, something better, Right, and scripture uh, talks about our works will be tested um, like by fire um, when we get to Christ. So buy something from me that is rich. Right? You say that, or he said that they're blind. Have this solved from me to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Naked, he says they are. But buy from me white garments so that you may be clothe yourself and shame, the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, right? It's not that we're gonna be rich if we follow Christ. It's not that we're going to be healthy if we follow Christ. It's not that we're gonna be you know, decked out in uh, Hermes and all these other brands I don't know about. Um, <laughs> but it's spiritually, right? We find our spiritual desires in Christ. We find our security in him. And when it comes down to it, the things that we seek are all to uh, address our security or insecurity, right? And so we find our security in Christ. 
We find richness in him. We find fellowship with him. We find love in him. He is everything. He is much better than anything the world could ever offer. He's showing them that their hopes can actually and infinitely be better completed in him. The greatness they expected to attain through worldly things actually was a ruse and drained them of spiritual life. Christ is the very essence of life abundant. And that being the case, how can we not be zealous? Remember C.S. Lewis, Lewis's quote, if we're with Christ, we will show it. We will be zealous. Now, those words kind of hurt, right? But he reminds us. He's like, true, I said that. But like, look, look, I love you. I reprove those that I discipline. Or I, <laughs> I reprove and discipline those I love. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't say those things. Christ wants our best, so he says the hard things. A true friend says the hard things. The world is more like a bad friend who just makes you keep on believing that things are good, right? Like, you're making bad financial choices. They're like, you know, should I go on this vacation? Yeah, man, let's go. They know your financial situation, right? (laughs) That's a bad friend. They should be like, dude, (laughs) you need to take a look at things and not go on vacation and like, maybe have a a budget, that sort of thing, right? The world is kind of like the false prophets of the day, right? The uh, Christ is calling us like, hey, this is the reality, and the world's like, no, it's good, it's good, like, you're gonna be fine. But everything is not fine. And so Christ says, be zealous and repent, Now, this isn't a first step, be zealous, and a next step, repent. It's that repentance flows out of zealousness. If we're with Christ and zealous for Christ and following Christ, we're constantly going to be aware of our need, of our sin, of our shortcomings. And we're going to be going to Christ, uh, you know, repenting. And so if we want to know where our heart is with Christ, ask ourselves, how often am I repenting? How often am I going to Christ and saying, man, like, I was impatient with Theo today. It's hard because he's in his teenage years. Um, (laughs) It happens a lot, (laughs) and I feel so bad. Um, I can only imagine real parents. Um, But yeah, how often do we go to Christ, you know, repenting? Like, man, I'm just not loving my wife the way that I ought to, or, you know, I'm... I'm just getting too fixated on the things uh, with work. I'm working long hours just because I'm like trying to make that next uh, position so I can make X amount so that I can do X, Y, and Z. Why are we pursuing those things? You know, seeking, uh, looking inwardly, understanding what Christ is calling us to and repenting of those things. It's the never-ending booster that keeps our spirit humble and eyes clear about the reality of our condition and our position, right? So it's not a repentance for select few either. It's open to all. Christ reminds us all, like, oh, and hey, like, I'm at the door knocking. If you hear me and open the door and come in and, and uh, I'll come in and, like, I'll have fellowship with you. Like, we'll hang out. We'll have a good time, right? And he says, you know, I'm, I'm going to, like, have you sit with me too, like, Anyone who hears me knocking and opens that door, I'm coming in because I want to have a relationship with you. Just open the door. 
So perhaps you're a zealous disciple of Christ. Continue, continue on with your eyes fixed forward and don't listen to the lies of the enemy telling you there's an easier, a funner way to fulfill your hopes. Remind yourself of Christ's efficiency, so much greater than anything in the world. Maybe you're a Christian today who's realized you're seeking f- to fulfill your hopes, your great expectations by means outside of Christ, right? Whether through career, financial security, materialism, activism, and it's sucking the life from you, making you indistinguishable from the world. Be zealous and repent. Turn away from that. Step into the better life that Christ is waiting to give you. Or maybe you're someone that hasn't believed in Christ, that he's life and he's life to the fullest, but realize now that those things that you thought would fulfill you are actually like vegan ice cream. Tasteful, but empty. (laughs) Lacking substance. Be zealous and believe. So wherever we're at in our spiritual journey, we all have an expectation for great things, right? And that's not bad. It's where we seek to fulfill those, how we seek to fulfill those. So don't end up chasing shadows that leave us uh, living a life with less zeal than we should have, right? Seek Christ. In all our cases, the fulfillment of our hopes lie at the beginning with the author of life, Christ. From that eternal spring, we find unending joy that's new every morning flowing up into zealous discipleship. So the question today is, are you a zealous disciple or just a cold booger on a hot plate? Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for today and for um, your word, for uh, for speaking truth to us, speaking the hard things. Um, I also thank you that uh, you don't just tear us down um, for the sake of it, but that you build us up, um, that you want to redeem us, to give us more, to give us life. And God, I ask that you would just speak to our hearts, that you would open our eyes to those ways that we're seeking to uh, fulfill, to meet those great expectations that we should rightly have, but we're seeking in the wrong way. That we would repent from that and be zealous so that the world might see that there's a difference by the love that we have for one another and for them and come to know you as their savior. We just thank you so much uh, for all the things that you have given us, God, Um, the good things, um, and how good you are to us in just so many different ways. Um, Thank you for the weather in Seattle, that it is getting better, I hope, Um, and just for uh, community, God, uh, for Icon Church. And so your name I pray, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.